Hello everyone and welcome to Digital Roadmap, an old school gaming podcast where we explore how the games of the past brought us the games that we love today. I'm your host Grant and in this episode we're looking at shareware games. Really what they are, what their value to the industry is, and really some of the big players from the past and today. Now to explain what shareware is, really the secret to it is in the name. It's basically a portion of software that you can share with friends. Back in the day, most shareware was basically small enough to drop onto a floppy disk, be it be it five and a half or three and a quarter, depending on really what the popular format was at the time, and just pass it off to a friend. So instead of having to digitally download the software or go out and buy a magazine with the disc on it, if you had a friend who had a friend who had a friend, eventually it was going to get to you at some point and just get passed around. I actually had a CD-ROM back in the day that had 250 shareware games on it. Most are about what you would expect from those bulk games, but I'm going to include a link in the show notes to the file. It's on archive.org, and it's it's a bit of nostalgia. There's a few good things on there as well. There's a few gems on there. Now, as I said, a portion of this was for free. So for games, you would get a portion of the game itself for free, usually between a quarter to a third of the level. So you get, say, it'd be broken up into episodes or segments, almost like mini games within the game, and you would get a quarter of that or a third of that. You'd get one episode of that, one section of that completely for free, completely to play as much as you want. And really that made it more than a typical demo. Most demos you get one level, most demos you'll get maybe a 20 minute window to play it in to get an idea of what it is, but just to give you just that little bit of a taste. These gave you a whole sense of what the game was so that you could decide if this really was something you wanted to play or just to get your attention. And it really was a great way for the early indie developers to build hype and get players to buy the full game. Because you've already got a portion of the game, you already get invested by the time you get to the end of that. You want to see what happens next. And so at the end of each game, you would basically get this registration screen, or every time you would exit, you'd get this registration screen saying, hey, send money here or call here with a credit card information. You'll get to unlock the full game to play as you please. Obviously, this was a great way for people to scam if they really wanted to. There was never a full game involved. They would just put out a small game and scam some money. But the majority of it and a lot of the great memories attached are the people that would buy the full game And all of a sudden, this experience they had is three times, four times longer than they had before. And actually, most registrations didn't actually send you a separate disc. They didn't send you more software. What they did is they gave you an unlock code, and there it was. The game was ready to play. So all the code, all the assets were already there in the game. You were just unlocking them when you needed them. Now, the other important thing to note is this wasn't just games. Um, The best example I can give you is WinZip and WinRAR are key pieces of shareware that can be used beyond their initial trial period. Anybody that uses WinRAR nowadays, and if you're playing classic PC games, chances are you have used it. When it pops up, it tells you, you know, you're on day 3,892 of your 30-day trial. Would you like to register? And it just gives you a bit of a delay screen on there before it'll let you click no and carry on with what you're doing. WinZip, for the really younger ones out there who really only know Windows 7, Windows 10, the Windows extraction program that you have built into Windows now is essentially WinZip. They have converted the WinZip technology into the interface of your file browser now in Windows, which is actually really cool to see and nice that I don't have to wait out a registration screen every time I want to unzip a file. Now, one of the major value for shareware really was with the indie developers. You got to remember that digital distribution wasn't really a thing until the 21st century, until really around the time of Half-Life 2 and games like that. There was a little bit of digital distribution before that, but even then, that was 21st century technology. So in the 1980s, 1990s, this was an easy way to get a customer base, to get a player base built up. And it allowed you to showcase your game without developing a special demo level or a special demo section that would then cut off. You could just put a lock on top of the extra episodes, the extra 
segments of the game that you weren't going to let players play unless they registered, and then, boom, you have your game there. You pass that out, you start handing that out to people, people start spreading it around, they'd get it from BBS systems, they'd get it, as I said, from the friend of a friend of a friend, or I got, you know, Wolfenstein 3D from a cousin, and you've got a player base. And then they'll share it with friends, because those discs were relatively cheap, especially compared to CD-ROMs, and you could just kind of download it on there, they'd bring you an old disc that they don't need anymore, you download it on there, they'd take it home, they'd play it. Now, as I said, Being Free got this game into hands of more players and therefore more potential customers, so much so that a lot of these companies, the subsequent games, the sequels, the the threequels or what have you, weren't shareware games. They were just retail games. So Doom 2 is the best example I can give you for that, where most people knew what they were getting into because everybody, everybody had played Doom, the shareware version, at the very least. So when Doom 2 came out and they wanted to play more Doom, they could just pick it up retail at whatever store they were going to, CompUSA, EB Games, all that stuff, and just, there, I've got the game now, I can play it. The other thing is when multiplayer was involved. If there was multiplayer in your game, this was a great way to get everybody on board, to get everybody wanting to play it. Because instead of having to count on three, four, eight friends to have the game already, they could come over for a party, you could pass around the shareware disc, everybody would install it, You've got your intro episode, and you've got your multiplayer basics. So now everybody can play, everybody can have a blast, then they take it home, they share it with more people, they want to play the main game just to get a bit more practice because you didn't have bots in in multiplayer matches at the time. That was actually a big creation when you finally got bots in multiplayer, but now you are playing the base game to learn how to play the game, and if you want to get better at it and unlock all those weapons and get all the different challenges, you're going to buy the main game. You're going to register the game, get the full version, Boom, Shareware's just made a new sale. Giving to charity is a good thing. Giving to charity and getting a game in return is an even better thing. With the Humble Store, you can do just that. When you buy from the Humble Store, a portion of every purchase goes to charity. It doesn't matter if you buy a single game, one of their game or book bundles, or their monthly bundle deal. Every purchase helps out a great cause. Humble includes a wonderful collection of new releases, indie darlings, and even the time-tested classics. Games like Orwell, where you serve as a member of a government surveillance program, deciding the information to pass up the chain of command. Do you ignore the context and make someone look like just an unhinged killer? Or do you ignore your instincts, even at the risk to public safety, just to make sure you don't give the wrong details? One of the classics that I love and I keep going back to is Fallout, the original. It's a post-apocalyptic game that launched the whole series. Can you find the water chip needed to save your people before time runs out? And I don't even want to get into the rest of the story after that happens. After you win your objective, there's a whole other story that pans out that's also very crucial. And as an added bonus for listeners of this podcast, if you buy anything after following the link in the show notes, a small portion of your purchase is going to be given to the show. This helps support the kind of content you're listening to right now, helps offset some of our hosting costs. So if you were looking for a new game or to get a classic that won't run off the discs anymore because it just doesn't run on modern systems, go to the Humble Store using the links in the show notes and get something for your donation. Now I just want to touch on three of the biggest players, the most well-known players from the shareware era, just to give you an idea of who they were. You're going to recognize a lot of these titles, and it's going to give you an idea of really where Shareware worked and how it made it such a huge deal. The first one, of course, is id Software. They were the developer. They were, they are the names. They were behind Wolfenstein 3D. They were behind Doom. They were behind Quake. These are the guys who made Shareware such a huge deal. They became household names. Even people that haven't played Doom know of Doom. There's a reason there's a movie of it, even if it wasn't the best, but not the worst movie either. On top of that, we have Epic Mega Games, or as they're just known now, Epic Games, and... 
they really were the the small guy in the pond. They had they were going up against id. They were going up against Apogee. They were dealing with all these big name developers, so they called themselves mega games to sound bigger and to sound more important than they maybe were. Now they didn't just develop stuff like Jazz Jackrabbit, but they were publishers as well. So they weren't just making the game. They were publishing other people's games, helping other indie developers find a shareware home. Now, one of the ones I'm going to mention is Solar Winds. It's a top-down space exploration game. You know I'm a fan of those, and I have fond, fond memories. The, the disc I'm going to be linking in the show notes has Solar Winds on there. Give it a try. There's also Jill of the Jungle, which is an action platform game. It's very indicative of platformers at the time. It's the start, really, of these platformer-type games, the earlier era of it. The more advanced, more future era being Jazz Jackrabbit. And I'm actually going to be going into more detail on that next episode. And for those that may recognize the name Epic Games but can't quite place it, they also made Fortnite, which, if I'm being completely honest, Fortnite really is developed on what is essentially a shareware model. You've got your multiplayer game that's completely free. You can buy your perks. You can register the extra stuff. And it's got a PvE, a single-player element, not necessarily a single-player, but a team element, a co-op element to it, that is purely buy right now. I know they're going free-to-play eventually, but as of when I'm recording this, it's still buy-to-play. And that really is the shareware model. You play the main Battle Royale game. You want to see what else there is. You want to learn a bit more about this world. You go buy the PvE version of the game. And now you have access to all that extra story, that extra plot, and you have a bigger experience as a result. Now, the last one I want to mention is Apogee Software. Now, this is a company that you will not recognize by that name unless you know Shareware Games. And that's because they changed their name eventually to 3D Realms, which you're going to recognize a little bit more from the era of Duke Nukem 3D. And these guys were the creators of the Duke Nukem series. They were the creator of the Commander Keen series. Now, both of these were action platformers as opposed to first-person shooters, but... They formed that foundation. These guys really did action platformers really well. They had a lot of character to them. They had a lot of style to them. And they had a good, solid story where you had clearly defined goals. A lot of these shareware games, there's a lot of shovelware. There's a lot of trash in them. Apogee stuff, games like the Duke Nukem's, games like the Commander Keen's, they had very much, you're going from point A to point B. You have to collect these items on the way. You have to achieve this stuff. This is what you need to do. This is how you need to do it. And you would recognize it just from the site. I could pop up a Commander Keen screen in front of my buddy. He's going to recognize it right away. And he hasn't played those games in forever, let alone a Duke Nukem screen. But that's kind of a mixed feelings for him since he did pay full price pre-order Duke Nukem Forever when it was announced. I know you're listening, Ryan. Now, even today, shareware isn't still around under a shareware title for the most part, even though one or two developers do still reference it. id Software did reference it during their Bethesda press conference a few years back at E3, where they put out a demo for Doom 2016, which was the first couple levels, very much as a nod to the shareware origins of that title. But a lot of the methods are still there. They're used in very different ways. They're used in different sections. You're going to see it a lot on the mobile market, especially. But I just want to touch on a few of them that, a few of the ways that it really does still exist today. Now, anything free to play, that is very much on the foundation of a shareware model. They give you kind of a core game to the player. They monetize it afterwards, oftentimes with skins, cosmetics. On the mobile market, they have ways to speed up the process of the game itself. All of these are just gratification things, but there are also more gameplay episodes, more segments of a game available. And the best one, the one that is the most reminiscent of the shareware model is these hidden item games, these seek and find games. And really, you're unlocking the rest of the game. You get a little bit of the game, and then you unlock the rest of it by buying access, usually tied to, like, a key item needed for the story purposes, like that one gem you need to open that door that you have everything else for. So they really do tie it in. They really do make you feel like it's a great way to carry on the story. 
and you don't lose any of the progress you've made by buying it at that point because you've gotten it for free already. The other one is trial periods because there were some shareware games that would just let you play up to a certain point or play for a certain amount of time. MMOs are the best example of that. They've really turned that into a core strategy for them because there's a lot of MMOs like you look at World of Warcraft or some of the other ones out there where they'll let you play up to a certain character level or let you play in a certain number of regions in the game. And once you've completed all that, you can still play around in those areas. You can still do all that stuff. You can go exploring, you can find the hidden items, you can do all that little bits, but you can't go further until you subscribe or buy the base game. And again, that is very much the shareware style, like Solar Winds. You can play up until you reach a certain point in the story and you can't play any further, but you can still carry on in that region that you're in. You can still explore that little sandbox area that you're in. Now, the most noticeable way that it's still in use today is actually with the episodic game. So Life is Strange, the Telltale games... Bendy and the Ink Machine, all of these, they'll offer you episode one for free. You'll be able to play the first episode. You'll be able to see what these games are, what the story is, what this world is. They'll draw you in with the world and then charge you for the rest of it. And so instead of unlocking all or nothing, one of the nice things about the episodic games is you can keep buying the chapters as long as you feel like it, as long as it keeps your interest. There's a, an incentive there to tell a good story because it has to keep drawing you back in for the next chapter each time. And there's been studies out there, there's been numbers analyzed, and you will see drop-off from chapter to chapter with episodic games, especially the ones that release over a long period of time, because there's a lot of people that just get tired of it, essentially, get bored with it or move on to something else, and they don't follow through to see how the story ends. So there is that incentive there. And I think Bendy and the Ink Machine is one of the best examples I can give for that, too, because all it is in the first chapter is world-building. They're introducing you to the world, and most of the gameplay mechanics, most of the fighting most of the survival aspects of it come in the later chapter so it's get invested in the world play the game after and so that's it for shareware games thanks for joining me this episode if you want to reach out you can do that on twitter at roadmap podcast come by the website roadmappodcast.com check out the facebook page check out the discord channel all of that's going to be in the show notes while you're there, feel free to suggest some older games that I should play, share some of your favorite memories, some of your favorite shareware memories. What's that one game? I know I didn't mention the Hugo House of Horror series, but believe me, I know that's there. That's on the disc I'm linking in the show notes. Or just ask some questions. I'm always happy to answer questions. While you're at it, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, really wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you're listening. Join me there, subscribe. Feel free to leave a review. It always helps the show out. Next episode, we're actually going to be looking at the Epic Games Classic, or Epic Mega Games Classic, the, I always refer to them as the love child of Sonic and Bucky O'Hare. I know that's going to be a reference not a lot of people get, but the game itself is Jazz Jackrabbit. It was really the best shot there at making a Sonic and Mario competitor on PC, and for a lot of people, it is still very fondly remembered today. So come back then, we'll talk a lot about this weird green rabbit with a gun, and thanks for listening. 